Welcome to Your Parenting is Showing, a podcast about what happens when your nice, smooth, professional front is upended by your parenting backstage in pandemic time. Where two so-called experts bring their friends on to talk about their own pandemic parenting wins and blunders, highs and lows, or as we used to say when our kids were little, popsicles and poopsicles. I'm Ellen. I'm a child psychologist in Boston. And I'm Molly, a local church pastor in Berkeley, California. And together we wrote a parenting book aiming to blend the best of child psychological science with a progressive Christian wisdom. To guide our parenting on both the easy days and the really, really messy ones, from toddler to teen and beyond. Hey, uh, okay, what's the name of our podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, hey, your parenting is showing. Your parenting is showing. We're so glad to be back with you. Man, what a long year this last month has been since we had a lovely episode with Quinn Caldwell anticipating all things Christmas. Uh, a few things have changed in our yes. in our public life. Would you say, y'all? Big things. And yeah. big things have happened. It's been lots of ups and downs. Yeah. To, I, I have to say, though, today's the day after the inauguration, and I slept so good last night. Mm-hmm. I did wake up with a little bit of a Trump administration hangover, but um, you know, any day now, I think I'll be working that out of my out of my body, out of my cells. Yeah. Do some raw, raw eggs and garlic, I think. For that. <laughs> That's <laughs> the I'm cure. An actual medical doctor. So. Raw eggs and garlic, dash of Tabasco, maybe. Okay. Guess the vampires. Right. Guess the vampires at bay. I love that. I'm on it. And we'll probably at some point talk um, more about what happened at the Capitol and how we've talked with our kids about that. Maybe we can even talk about that a little bit um, tonight, too, but just yeah. to acknowledge all the things that have been happening in the world. Well, and we have so, a perfect guest to help us process that. We do. We have with us tonight Dr. Liz Pinsky, who is a colleague and also, I'm happy to say, a good friend, has become a good friend of mine, um, one of the smartest people I know. So, oh yes, you are. She's making faces at me, even though you all can't see that on the podcast. Um, Liz is a pediatrician and a child psychiatrist at Mass General with me. Um, She lives with her family in the Boston area, um, in Molly and my old stomping grounds, and um, we invited her on to talk about all kinds of things, but in particular wrote a really wonderful um, ideas piece for The Atlantic back in August um, called We Flattened the Curve, Our Kids Belong in School, um, talking about the conundrum of how um, different school districts have handled or not handled getting kids back to school in the pandemic. Um, there was just another article I saw in the New York Times today that tried to gather some statistics, and it was woefully discouraging about how few statistics have been gathered on what's actually happening with our kids across the country because it's so different from um, not just state to state, but city to city and town to town and district to district um, because there was no real federal guidance. And so parents were left without a whole lot of guidance. Um, And Liz wrote this really wonderful piece um, about that and how we might be better using science um, to think about our kids and families' well-being. So that's one of the things maybe we can talk a little bit about. And she's also um, a climate activist and has thought a lot about how climate change impacts kids and families and how we can be thinking about leaving things um, 
I don't know if I want to say better, but certainly not at least devastated, I guess, for our kids. Leaving things. For yeah, our kids. leaving things. We'd like to keep some things to leave. For leaving our leaving, more, leaving more than a burnt crust of earth. <laughs> <laughs> like an old pizza crust. Not on that. So welcome, Liz, to Thank your parenting you. is showing. Welcome. Thank you guys for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So you wrote that article in August. Um, I think we can share that that was in August. This is now January, mm-hmm. and your kids are still not in school. Yeah, that's right. So they're really, you know, I think we're all feeling like, um, you know, there's sort of there's multiple Americas right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and as was true, you know, a lot's changed since August in terms of what we know about opening schools and what we know about school safety and keeping grown up safe and sort of all of those things. A lot of things have changed. Um, But one of the things that hasn't changed since August is that there are places in the country with, you know, super high rates of COVID where people maybe aren't adhering as closely to safety guidelines as they should. And in a lot of those places, kids of all ages are back in schools. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there are places like my corner of the world, Somerville, Massachusetts, which has, I believe, actually quite literally the highest level of coronavirus safety sort of mitigations for schools of anywhere in the nation. And um, we have a, we have weekly testing for students, bi-weekly testing for staff. We've put seven and a half million dollars worth of HVAC mitigations into our school buildings. Um, and we haven't let back a single child, you know, three and four year olds with Down syndrome and autism. And we haven't let anybody back in the buildings. Um, and so, you know, hearing you guys talk about what happened at the Capitol Last mm. week, two weeks ago, a year two ago, weeks, yesterday, yeah, who knows ago. when it was. Two weeks ago, yeah. <laughs> a year ago. <laughs> but, but that sense that sort of we're, sometimes it feels like we're not even, we're not even living in the same reality. The reality that I'm living in is one where, um, yeah. where no, no children have been back in any school buildings now for, we're coming up on a year. Yeah. yeah. So we haven't well, made a lot of progress. Well, when we're not letting ourselves be guided by data when we're letting ourselves be guided by our most afraid reptilian brain. Uh, and it's normal and natural to, to fear death. And this is a deadly virus, but we have to do higher order thinking here because I, I loved what you said in the Atlantic piece that there are, um, whenever you treat a patient, you think about the downstream effects of treatment, but you also think about non-treatment, you know, non-treatment has its perils as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, I trained as a physician um, and you're, you know, part of that training is acquiring at least some familiarity with, with life and death decisions, even if it's not what you end up doing sort of with your day to day. So the notion of having to either take action or not take action and knowing that it might have really serious consequences is something that I trained with. And I recognize that, you know, superintendents and school committee members and, you know, folks who are having to make these really hard decisions now um, maybe haven't had to do that in the past to make decisions that have this level of consequences for people. And, you know, obviously I'm very frustrated with, with my district and with my local leadership. I also very much acknowledge that there hasn't been enough guidance from above Mm-hmm. on that stuff. And so people have been a little bit, you know, not a little bit, people have been a lot sort of hung out to dry to make their own decisions and figure out how to do things on their own. Yeah. And it's I, really, I, really I, big responsibility. So I have a lot of sympathy for, um, for local leaders as well, as much as I think they've kind of flubbed it in some cases. Well, and speaking of data, I mean, it, 
they, no one wants a child's death on their hands. And, and even though the data is all over the place, it would be easy to, if you open schools to then quantify how many children died from COVID in your district, right? But what is almost impossible to quantify is how many children will die or experience really adverse outcomes or trauma because they're not in school. And you, you name some of that, um, hunger, um, abuse. Um, maybe, could you just talk about that for yeah. a minute? Sure. So, I mean, I guess what I would say is that, you know, there are, there are things we know about, about COVID and about um, diseases associated with coronavirus. There are things that we don't know. They're sort of known unknowns. We know that serious illness and death in children related to coronavirus is vanishingly rare. So until recently, there had been no pediatric deaths in the state of Massachusetts related to coronavirus since the beginning of the pandemic. None. Um, there are every death related to coronavirus is a tragedy, and oftentimes I would actually argue an unnecessary tragedy, but there have not, there have been two since the beginning of the pandemic at this point. So we know that the risks to children from coronavirus are super low. The risks to children from not being in school are in many cases enormous. So one of some of the things that I mentioned in the article, including as you talk about um, both hunger and um, related to lack of physical activity, obesity, um, child abuse, depression, anxiety, um, kids with really significant disabilities who school is a place where they have a lot of structure and it helps them regulate their behavior so they're safe at home. All of those things are consequences for, for kids. We actually do now have more data about the mental health impacts of the pandemic um, and rates of of not just child abuse, but um, in some ways actually more horrifyingly um, detected child abuse. So child abuse that comes to people's attention. We actually do now have data on that just in the last couple months. Um, and as expected, more kids are coming into the emergency room in crisis, a lot more kids, wow. um, about 30% higher in adolescents and about 25% higher in little kids, kids as young as five coming into the emergency room in psychiatric crisis. Um, and we also know that kids are coming to emergency rooms much less for child abuse evaluations but are being admitted to the hospital at similar rates for child abuse, which so tells what us. That mean? So what that tells us is that kids are being kids are not being severely abused any less often. Kids who actually are hurt so badly that they need to be admitted to the hospital, but kids who are coming in with more minor situations um, are not being detected and are not being evaluated. So, so we're all, not catching them early. Right. We're not catching them early where we might no, otherwise. Catch them early. Part of that is also they're not coming in as much for routine care. You correct. know, I mean, Liz and I have been basically all remote in providing care for from the beginning, unless it's a kid who is physically in the hospital. So they're already either medically or psychiatrically ill enough that they're in the hospital. We're doing it all remote. And there are just things I mean, there's, of course, there can be advantages. You actually have a window into a child's home that you might not have otherwise, but there are also a lot of things that we can't really. as easily assess. Yeah. You know, I mean, I have a, I have a teenager I'm thinking of with um, kind of a mild to moderate eating disorder and, we, and they, they've not been in for regular visits. I can't assess over video <laughs> how she's doing because she's not coming in to see the nutritionist or the doctor. She's not getting weighed. She's not getting those regular checkups. So I think, you know, it is it is that now we're seeing those effects. The New York Times article I was mentioning that was out today 
did try to gather, like I said, what data they could and what really jumped out at me, the, the percentage of um, high schoolers who are failing in certain districts this year compared to last, at this point in the year compared to this point in the year last year, in many cases is double or triple. Wow. So it's because they're, you know, either they're not, so they're, on, they're not, yeah. it's, it's a totally lost year for them. Yeah. Um, and I get really frustrated when I, when I think we sort of assumed that, oh, this, these are, these kids have grown up on screens, they'll be fine, sort of doing remote learning. And that is just not the case. There are so many variables about remote learning that don't work for them that that could be a whole probably other podcast episode but just today um, just today one of my folks in church who's a special ed teacher in one of the poorest districts in in the east bay called me just for a, a pep talk because she's so good at what she does but she cannot do it over the internet she cannot give these kids what they need and she says i just have them for a little while they're in this critical they're you know 12 to 16 and um, I can't ignite them the way I could if we were in the classroom together. I can't kind of get them to light up and latch on to the thing that's going to carry them through and help them find their passion and their strength as kids with um, learning disabilities or or other you know other other obstacles. And she was just heartbroken. This is this is her last year of teaching. She's retiring after this. It's not how she wants to go out. Yeah, that is that image of that teacher who want, you know, knows that she can't give those kids exactly what they need during that critical psychological period, to me is really, really poignant. It makes me think about the kids who are at that critical neurodevelopmental period when they're really little, who also aren't getting what they need. Um, And those are the kids that really scare me, are kids who we know it's the really early speech therapy, occupational therapy, and physical therapy that changes kind of what their developmental capacity is for the rest of their lives. And you, you can't miss that for a year. So if you, if you have a kid who is pre-verbal, who has autism, um, and who needs really intensive speech therapy, that's not something that you can catch up on when they're four and a half. If they're not getting it when they're three and a half, you can't, you can't make that up. So the risks to kids being in school, we know for most kids, unless they have, you know, significant medical stuff, you know, separate from COVID, for most kids, those risks are extraordinarily low. For some kids, the risks of not being in school are super, super, super high. So now that thing, yeah, sorry, can we talk help. for a few minutes about risk assessment? I mean, because I think that's, yeah. for I me, that's where I was going to say, now that we've made all of the parents listening completely panic that everything is ruined, <laughs> what are the <laughs> solutions? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to talk about risk assessment because I feel like often we have lost sight as a as a society and the people in charge, but also even individual parents of the fact that this is something we do all the time. Um, Maybe not as consciously because the risks aren't as big and obvious and unusual and historic as a you know global pandemic. In a, right, in a global yeah. pandemic, but we do it all the time when we mm-hmm. decide to let them go to a new friend's house without, you know, calling to see do they have firearms in the house or do, you know, I mean, there's a million, we literally take a million risks with our kids in a day probably. And um, we have to, because that's our job is to to send them out into the world and the world is a risky place. Um, 
And we tend to evaluate those things and weigh those things and make those decisions all the time without being really conscious of it. But it, it, I feel like we've lost sight of that somehow in this um, pandemic. Yeah, I think that's true. And that was what I was talking about in the article. And again, you know, I think August was different from now. Um, but I do think in that folks perhaps did not feel as confident back in August about the risks of COVID to children and perhaps did not feel quite as confident that they were really small. Um, you can't go through, I mean, I couldn't live my life if I thought about the fact that, you know, a branch could fall from a tree, a, a car could careen off the road. Like you can't live your life. And certainly the things that we do every day, like strapping our kids into car seats or, you know, being around swimming pools or, you know, having kids near open windows. I mean, there's things we do every day that are of much greater risk to them, statistically speaking, than COVID is. And you can't go through your life thinking about that all the time because you wouldn't, you'd never do anything. Um, I do want to give people, it is not as if this is a simple decision that people just need to grasp coronavirus isn't a big risk to kids, open the damn schools. It's not that simple because there are obviously risks to adults. Um, Mm -hmm. And that is where we... Um, you know, that's really where we're stuck is around um, sort of mitigating the risks to adults and people coming to consensus around what is an acceptable level of risk to adults. Um, um, even now that we have a vaccine, I mean, it seems like that is a portal. It seems like that's a, you know, we're here at the very beginning of the long, what will be a long tail to the pandemic, but we can prioritize teachers over other kinds of people mm-hmm. as. So I, I absolutely hope we do. Um, Kids in my district, for example, will still have then been out of school probably for 18 months. I think the vast majority of kids in my district are unlikely to go back before September, and that will be 18 months. Um, Right, because it was March, right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think there there are, I think the statistics are that about about maybe 40% of elementary school students are currently fully remote. And my guess is that even with vaccination, a lot of those kids won't get back before the end of the school year. And that, that means it will literally be a year and a half in the life of a small child out of school. Yeah. So by all means, I think we should be prioritizing the teachers for their well-being um, and also for the kids' well-being. But I don't think it's a fix. And it doesn't... Um, the things that our response to coronavirus and sort of schools reveal about our society and what we value mm-hmm. and who we value... Um, certainly the vaccine won't fix that. So, you know, coronavirus has revealed cracks in like every aspect of everything. Um, But honestly, the fact that we don't care that much about children and families, Mm -hmm. um, we just don't, um, for me, is a a big one. So We like to party. (laughs) What's that? We like to party. We like to party. Want to go to the gym, the mall, the movies, stores. Yep. We like to party. Um, small people that don't vote or pay taxes, Mm -hmm. but who consume taxes, in fact, um, matter less to us. We don't care. And so, you know, in Europe, we, and in Canada, education and school is a, it's a right for children. So, you know, I do think that there are genuine conversations to be having around risk to adults and what's an acceptable level of risk. And I think that there's a, I think there's a spectrum of reasonable opinion about that. High school students spread this virus like grownups. 
they can access remote school better than little kids. Yeah. My ninth um, graders, my ninth graders fine. Right. A lot of high school students I think are fine. And if they had, you know, there are other reasons to think that they may be better off in school, including that they may actually spend the virus less when they're in school than when they're out in the community making out under the bleachers and, you know, <laughs> smoking. Smo- no, it's, I mean, it's true. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. On our family like, conversation this past Sunday when our 18-year-old came home uh-oh. late and, yeah, okay, moving right along. Where have you been and what have you been doing without a mask on? <laughs> Where have you been spreading COVID? <laughs> um, so, so leaving aside that, I think that there is like a, there's a reasonable, like, I don't know that every single kid should be back everywhere, especially older kids, because they pose a different risk and the risks to them of not being in school are, are different. But the but point is, it's not all or nothing. The, we now have enough data not, that we can start to make more granular, smart decisions. But see, I'm going to go at you about that because you said that earlier too, that like we need to let the data and the science guide us. I think that it is actually because we have gotten a little too bogged down in elements of the data and the science to some extent that we've ended up in this mess. So, so many of these conversations end up in this like, well, but I saw this study and well in Sweden, like they look at bus drivers and cotton candy vendors and and it's like you know what guys like like it doesn't matter we do nobody can argue that we don't know how to make schools safer nobody can argue that like so the to me what school's essential right and so we can't we like we've gotten so bogged down in arguing how much risk is it and what does the data show and kids have covid in their nostrils like fine they have covid in their nostrils they they still need to go to school. Right. Well, and it's the tension between, I think, I think that's sort of what I mean about how have we lost the ability to do risk assessment that the data is never going to give you the answer, right? Correct. Like anybody who's in science or medicine or whatever, we know that. You have to interpret the data. You have to interpret the data and you have to apply the data to your particular situation or your particular patient or your particular community or your particular school and have discussions and make the best decision you can. But there's never going to be a decision that's going to eliminate all risk to everybody. Right. The data is never going to say, do this, do that. Right. And that is where it gets at values, right? Yeah. Because it's no, a public health decision to say that it's just science or that it's just data leaves aside the fact that different communities also have different sets of values. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even saying that like the value should be that all kids should be back in school. Cause again, I think one of, I think I actually value safety and I'm fairly can want a fairly conservative approach to school reopening. Actually, I, I think it's problematic to have high school kids back in school, especially right now. And where you and I actually disagree. Cause I think it's very possible to get them back. Oh, I think, I think it's possible to get them back reasonably safely, but I think, the, you know, folks are fighting in some communities right now to have them back more or to people are mad, but whatever. I think that it gets, it gets more complicated at well, that end. Well, values with that though. I mean, in many places, parents and I mean, okay, I'm be a little judgy are more up in arms that high school sports are being canceled. Correct. They can't play basketball and football than that they're not in the classroom. That's, that reflects your values. Maybe not mine. So right here in Somerville, our youth hockey is up and running. Right. So if we were only using the data, (laughs) even, we would not be making many of the decisions that we're making because we can't, that that's not how it works. Correct. 
I do think that different, I think I don't, I think the high school question is, is actually a tough question, both in terms of values and in terms of the medicine. Mm-hmm. I think that there is a range of acceptable opinions on that one. And I think a range of acceptable approaches, which is also what you, yeah. what you like, I mean, it does depend on your community. I know in my own town I, where I feel like they've handled it very, very well, they it's have. down I mean, it's down to the school level, though. They gathered, they took the the global data, the national data, and the local data. I mean, how big is this school? How big are the classrooms? How many kids are in there? Can we keep them spaced apart? Is there ventilation? And and decided there's going to be a different plan based on different schools. And then there will be choices also for families so that families can make decisions based on their own risk assessments and their own values. Um within that structure. So yeah, I mean, my district, I think is a great example of how, how it can be done um, using the data in a smart way. But I think, you know, the point about values is just so important. And, you know, it was really the piece that guided Molly and me in writing and, and I in writing the book to say, you know, we want your values to guide your parenting. Um, the techniques are all great and the skills and the tools and the parenting hacks, sure, but those need to be in the context of just sometimes stepping back and saying, what are our family's values? How do we want to approach these things? What's important to us? I think I mentioned too that I had read way back shortly after Luke was born, I read in Crittenden's The Price of Motherhood. Have either of you guys read that? No. Oh, it's an oldie but amazing goodie. And the fact that it's now I realized 20 years old, was sort of depressing because she makes this incredibly compelling argument that I thought was going to naively change the world, um, <laughs> right? About how economically important mothering back in 2001, but I'll say parenting is that, that, that the, there is a value of parenting to us as a society, whether you have kids or not. Um, if kids are in school and, and we're taking care of kids, then parents can work and contribute to the economy and contribute to society. If kids are in school and they're learning, they're more likely to get jobs and contribute to society and pay into your social security. And, um, you know, there's just all of these economic impacts that actually, if there's a way in which taking care of families is very much in line with American values. Um, you know, not, you don't have to love kids and, and be a, oh, I love babies. I love kids person to value kids and families and parenting. Um, and you can even put a monetary value on it. You can put a number on it. Um, and yet here we are 20 years later, like, listen, here we are. Like we are. Yeah. So frustrating. <laughs> here we are. Well, until Lisa's point, when we first started talking, you know, we're so polarized. We're living in more than, like two Americas, but really more than two Americas. And the pandemic has kind of sliced and diced our, our quote, family values, unquote, like nothing else. Right. And it's not to slice and dice by left or right or, you know, religious, whatever religion you are, atheist, agnostic. It's a lot of it's class, like class is feeding big time into how we make decisions. Um, there's a private boys school, boys middle school on, on the campus of my, on my church campus, they rent space. And um, after a couple years of struggling, you know, to, to register enough students to go into the black, they had a huge surge this year, Berkeley, mm. California, because all these parents were like, nah, my kid needs to be an in-person school and they have a plan. So um, those of us who can afford to buy our way into in-person school, some of us have made that choice, you know, just really, 
used our privilege to make that happen. Well, and that gets at, you know, again, going back to what happened, whether it was a week ago or two weeks ago or whenever it was, but at the Capitol. But, you know, not for nothing, public education is a cornerstone of our democracy. Mm-hmm. And I, my family lives where my family lives because we felt really committed, not just to public schools, but to public schools that had kids who were going to be different from my kids who weren't bussed in from somewhere else, but who actually like live there and were part of the community. My kids went to elementary school in Somerville too. That was the the choice that we said, there are things you're going to learn. You're going to learn in the Somerville school system that are not academic learning. They're not going to get you into Harvard, but will shape you as a human being. Right. Which is not to say, I mean, like, you know, Somerville's not, you know, (laughs) Somerville has become pretty, but, um, but that, that is what we wanted for our kids was for them to be in and, you know, for them to, because, because that's democracy and democracy mattered to us. And we just filled out all of our private school applications last week. Mm. Um, yep. Because as much as I believe in democracy, I can't sacrifice my kid on that altar either. And so, you know, th- it has gotten so nasty here. Um, and folks are so angry and kids are doing so badly and the community is falling apart. And so a lot of this is happening sort of in the name of progressive politics. And there, there's a sort of weird thing where keeping schools closed has somehow become yeah. the progressive I saw the switches flip when Trump came out and yeah. said, you have to get them back to school. And it was like, Knowing the way the message because of the messenger and granted his message was not at all thought out and I don't even want to go there. It wasn't worth it, but it has, it's become yet another politicized issue right. so in, in as, an unexpected way to me. So as soon as he said it, you know, that we were, you know, we were screwed as soon as he said it um, because keeping schools closed was anti-Trump. And folks lost track of the bigger picture, um, namely like children's lives <laughs> and well-being. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, a- a- and people stopped listening to the science. So I think, you know, I became really involved in the school reopening stuff in my own community, partly, I think, in response to what was happening nationally from Trump and all of that felt so like abhorrent to me and ignoring science and, you know, just like lies and crazy. And then I saw the folks who I thought I was allied with doing the same thing. And it was like, gosh, so we can ignore, like, it's like, we're going to ignore the data on schools for political. It's like, it's, it's like we did the exact same thing. Yeah. We're going to cherry pick. Yeah. Um, And it was just, it was just very distressing. Oh yeah. But I think, (laughs) you know, when you talk to about, the parent, you know, your own family deciding to apply to private schools or these decisions we're making in some ways, I think, Hey, look, let's, let's put some of this stuff out there. It's not new. I mean, I felt that when we moved from Somerville to a much more lily white suburb, um, that I knew what we were sacrificing, um, on the one hand for our kids, but on the other hand, what we were getting for our kids. And I mean, I still feel all kinds of mixed feelings about that. Um, and that's that's been happening for a long, long time um, where many of us 
do genuinely hold democratic values and we and we genuinely want to close gaps and it's 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 important to us and we talk about it and then we know i know i don't always act in line with that when it comes to my kids especially um well it's very complex i mean Liz, I love that line about, you know, you don't, you're, you can't sacrifice your kids on the altar of your values. You have to do what's best for them. And this is not to push back on that, but it's, just, you know, we're always guessing at what's best for our kids. Like, we don't really know, you know, my ninth grader is doing reasonably well. Like she, there's a, there's a lot about virtual school that she loves. Dog cuddles, hot lunches, mom cuddles, you know, just not having to, not, not, none of the social pressure of, you know, walking down the hall as a, you know, four foot 10 freshman with giant humans all around her. Um, But then there, there's downsides, but we can't ever know, you know, we don't get to see what might've been. We don't get to see the road not taken with our kids. We're all just trying to make the best decisions we can in real time, knowing who they are and, and guessing at what they need within, you know, the, given the resources we have. Yeah. I mean, for sure. I, I have no, this, the decision to find another setting for my kids, assuming that Somerville still, I'm, I'm assuming that Somerville may not actually be back in September. Um, that's Why? how Why broken are you is here. Wow. Cause that is how broken things are here is that I think it is quite possible that my kids won't, I mean, and my, um, not really from a pandemic point of view, but just from a, how divided people are. I think from a pandemic point of view, I would not be surprised if folks refuse to go back even once there's, you know, because there will be variants, there will be other things. Folks are really going to be a lot in here against going back. And I'm going to, I'm going to have a kindergartner in September. And the notion of remote kindergarten is, Mm. I mean, you're laughing, you're, you're laughing, but that's what hundreds and hundreds are doing in Somerville. I'm curious because Somerville, you, you referenced this a little earlier, Somerville's gotten really gentrified over the last few years. It happened in, during my 12 years living there. Um, what are, are there any low income fa- I know there are low income No, for sure there are. Are and they what, able to advocate? Are they part of the conversation? So no, not as much as they should be. So because yeah, um, they're working, because <laughs> they're exhausted. Because well, I don't want to. I don't want to speak for those. Okay. Like I want to be very careful about not speaking for those families. I know that there are definitely groups of families, especially in the English learner community. There, there are definitely families who feel strongly about what it is that they want. Some of those families may not be interested in going back at all, and may feel more comfortable about. And I, I, I generally don't want to speak for those families. Um, but the what was the question? It has already fallen well, out of my head. Just, I think yes. you were saying that you're oh, I know. Right. Point, right? Of you well, can't think that. <laughs> what I was going to say is that I don't, in terms of you are right, of course, that you can never, I mean, you got to make decisions as you go and you never know for sure what will be best for your kid. And certainly there are some kids who are doing well with remote. Um, I don't think a five-year-old does well with remote ever. That is not kindergarten. Um, right. You don't, you can't learn the things that you need to learn developmentally as a kindergartner remotely. For me, the thing that is more, it it feels more like a a dereliction of my values to be doing it. So it has less to do with worrying that it may or may not be the right thing for my kid than it does that this is my community. I committed to being here. I have this like unearned and unfair level of privilege that I can make the choice to opt out and take my kid to private school. Um, I had the option. I mean, I, I withdrew my younger one from the public preschool here and she's in private preschool in Somerville. 
happily this year. So she does go in person. And I send my kid, my older one to a learning center every day. So he's out of the house three days a week. Um, but part of the reason that I feel like I have to be fighting this fight hard is partly because I've made those choices. So like I could just mm -hmm. opt out and send, but like most families can't do that. And the right. kids don't have those choices. Right. Um, and so like, I'm not, I'm not like, I don't know, I'm not trying to be a martyr, but, it, but you, um, I feel very torn about taking, about opting out and having that ability when so many yeah. people don't. Yeah. yeah. I think it's not fair. I think many of us are feeling that way. And I think, you know, to that point of it, never knowing what the future will hold and, and, and what might be best for your kid in the long run. I do think, you know, Molly, you were saying like, what's the hope? What can we kind of give people? I do think we have to trust our gut as parents. And I think, um, I mean, I can say as a parent, I knew, pretty quickly what was working and what wasn't for my own kids. And I think as a psychologist and therapist who sees lots of kids and families, it's very obvious. It's very apparent who this is working for and who is, who, who is okay, who's okay and who's not. Um, and, and there's no kind of rule of thumb, I think, for that. But if you know your kid is not okay, then you will do what you need to do to, to you know, support them and make things better in the moment. And sometimes that, that does mean kind of sacrificing a, a, a lot of um, compromising things you might not never have imagined compromising, I guess. But it works the other way too. You know, I loved, I'm not going to say it as nicely, as beautifully as you did, Molly. Um, when, when you said we, you know, sacrificing our kids of the altar of our values. Yeah. Well, it works the other way too, right? Like, I mean, yeah. You had to fight. I mean, you can also sacrifice your kid on the altar of values that, you know, you've got to go to Harvard and therefore I'm going to push you. And, you know, it works in all kinds of ways. So, like you said, it's kind of about knowing our kids and, but also just valuing. Like, and our kids need to learn our values. We talk about this yeah. in the book. You know, we're not, it's, we're not imposing our values on them. We're actually, you know, trying to do our due diligence and trying to discern what we feel is, is right and the highest good, and then model that for them and offer them that. So, you know, this is just a whole new frontier in which we have to do that. It is certainly revealing a lot. <laughs> and we want to ask Liz, I mean, Liz, you've been yeah. talking a little bit about your own family, but um, one of our, one of our questions for this podcast is how has the pandemic revealed the fault lines in your own parenting, you know, sort of revealed the gap between how you ideally would like to parent and how you are actually parenting? <sighs> <laughs> There's a lot in that side. I mean, so, you know, I want to say something deep or me. I mean, I think for all of us, it's just like we no one has the patience mm -hmm. <laughs> or the stamina to deal with this. Like mm -hmm. this is, this is too much. And again, I say that from a position of immense privilege. I have enough space for my kids. We can go outside safely. We, um, you know, everybody's kept their income. We are not food insecure. Like it, I am so impatient and so done. <laughs> And rely on screens a lot. We got my seven-year-old, I'm sorry, Santa, 
got my seven-year-old a Nintendo Switch for Christmas. And I was like, you know what? Have it. The the first it's fine, my, Santa. Go for my, it. <laughs> my, my kid had never been allowed to do Minecraft. I sort of feared it. I like had heard about it, but I didn't understand it. And he wanted to do it. And so like the first week in March, we uh maybe it was the end of February, we um we talked, we sat him down and we talked to him and you're going to be allowed to do Minecraft, but here's going to be the rules. And it's going to be like 20 minutes once a week <laughs> and you're going to earn it and like on and on. And, you know, some grown ups going to sit next to you. And then like, <laughs> bam, <laughs> the schools closed on March 12th. And it was like Minecraft for Minecraft forever. <laughs> Every day, I'm like you're kill- you're kicking pigs. You're killing like I don't even know what's happening. He's setting his, sheep on fire. Spatial awareness is excellent. I didn't care. I was like, set all the sheep on fire. Whatever, just get out of my hair. So I so you know I mean whatever you know we all want to be more patient. I'm not patient enough. Um, uh, can I come up with anything deeper than that? <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. Just have to be real. Just has to be real. Yep. And and I don't think any of us can hear it enough that we're all doing the best we can and it's okay as long as I as as long as you are curbing your 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 anger and not taking your anger out on your kids. We're all you know, in a in a really hurtful, chronic way. We're all doing the best we can and that's all we can do. And part of the whole idea of this podcast is that that can be even more meaningful to people coming from a pediatrician and child psychiatrist. That That is not a realistic expectation for anybody. Um, none of nope. us is perfect. None of us is patient all the time. Yep. Um, none of us have figured out screen time. Show me the person who's figured you know, out screen time. And, you know, like the U.S. in particular is all about the nuclear family and rugged individualism and independence. And we don't, you know, a lot of us don't live close to our families of origin and don't have these natural tribes and, and wider communities and safety nets. And this has really exacerbated that. Like it's really up to us and we have to be our kids everything. And I'm not sure that biologically or developmentally that you know, that's what's supposed to, that's what we're supposed to be. Like, that's why I'm such a church person. Cause in church, my kids have tons of grandmas and aunties and uncles and cousins and other people absorbing them and teaching them. And, you know, I can send them like they can go climb trees of coffee hour and I, I can get some adult conversation, you know, all that we've been robbed of all of that. It's all nuclear all the time. And that's not good <laughs> for us. For well, I mean, it's the idea of pods, right? I mean, people are creating new communities because we yeah. need that. But I mean, I hope that the convert as a part of the reason that I'm so happy that happy, I guess maybe it's not the right word, but um, I don't know what the right word is. Pleased that Liz is pushing this conversation and keeping it going is that I hope we keep it going. We're, we have to keep it going even when we are out of the depths of this pandemic because it is revealing values we should be examining. It is revealing um, inequities that are getting worse and are going to persist. And we're going to be suffering some of the consequences of these decisions for a long time. So I think we better keep talking about them because um, I don't know, at least I know Liz and I are certainly going to be still dealing with them for a long time. And 
Well, and I'll say, you know, I've been I've been a bit evangelized by you today, Liz, you know, because my big kid finished high school right before the pandemic started and decided not to go to college this year and my ninth grader's doing fine. I think I've been a little lax about this. Like, you know, they'll be fine. It's a lost year for all that, but then we'll get back to normal. And um, there's, you know, there's a there's something between like using our privilege to give our kids to buffer our kids as as much as possible, and um, and you know, sacrificing our kids on the altar. You know, if if your kids end up in private school next year, if my kid is still fine in virtual, I can still put pressure on the system as a person with a voice who has some influence to say my kid's fine, but not all kids are fine. And like, just to just, we know we're social animals and this is how politics works. And this is how, you know, we can influence the system with our, with our, with our fury, with our, with our, you know, articulate righteous fury. So um, thank you. You've, you've shifted this for me today. I'm glad. <laughs> I love to be right. <laughs> so you usually good. are. You usually are right. Delicious. I'll give you that. <laughs> um, I don't know. Anything else we want to ask Liz about today? Anything you want to ask us about? Anything else you want to talk about or promote? Or um, I don't. I guess the one thing that I would say, if it if this is edited in later or whatever. So I am not, so I have become super embroiled in the school reopening advocacy. I'm not a school reopening advocate. I'm a climate activist. That's what I actually am. Is a climate <laughs> and what I would say is that actually a lot of the pediatricians who I'm friends with either in real life or like our like Twitter buddies or whatever with who are climate activists have become super involved in the school reopening thing. And the thing that they have in common is that it is about adult pleasures trumping what children actually need to, mm. to have lives. Mm -hmm. And it is also about the fact that the decisions that adults would have to make to protect children actually would be better for everybody. So there's this false notion that the reason that grownups aren't doing the things they want to do is because they're entitled to, in terms of climate, their Hummers and their long haul flights and their cheeseburgers. And in the case of coronavirus to their like indoor dining and their bars and their casinos. When in fact, if they were willing to give those things up in order to make it possible for kids to, in one hand, have a livable future and on the other hand, go to school we actually wouldn't be in this mess because all of us would have more responsible behavior and we might be able to do things like eat indoors safely. Um, and so that has just been an interesting overlap between the thing that I care about a lot right now, but I'm hoping is not permanent and my actual sort of passion, which is the climate work, is that they actually have super, super common threads around like justice and prioritizing children and grownups being um, super selfish and not seeing the bigger picture. I love it. That the one is, thing I'll throw in there. Yeah. That's damning and beautiful and something we all need to hear. There you go. We got to get over our short-term gratification for long-term investment in kids and our own future. 
which I'm people here. do on both sides of the political spectrum. I mean, that's part of what's yeah. heartbreaking is that ev- if everybody, everybody loves judges, their kids, everybody loves their kids. Everyone loves their kids. Yeah. And so that should have been something we could do as a nation is be like, we're going to control our behavior so that the kindergartners can go back. That um, should have been the fulcrum. But that wasn't the, yeah. but that wasn't the rallying cry. Well, I mean, that should be the definition of family values, right? The definition of family values should be that we value our children as people, as individuals, as who have rights and autonomy and are going, you know, to, they, they are part of our society. They, yeah. they have value, inherent value, but that should be family values. But that's not what family values means in, it's been co-opted, unfortunately, so um it kind of gets back to that value our kids let's value our kids think big picture liz it's been so great to talk with you tonight thanks for making time after your kids went to bed when you might have been relaxing with an adult beverage or herbal tea or something getting ready for the next whatever you have to face tomorrow i'm so grateful to you I told you you could bring an adult beverage with you. I would not. I would never drink while doing a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) The only way to fly. (laughs) 